Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and once again, may I welcome you to our podcast. We have a tremendous show in store for you tonight, and we're going to get right to it shortly. But first of all, many of you don't know who I am, and I am the author of a series of books entitled Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, all of which are available in paperback and ebook at Amazon. And volumes one through six are in audible format at uh, iTunes, Audible, and Amazon as well. And you can also partake of my cool new series, The Exorcists, volume one Truth and Lies, Truth and Lies. Diabolica and Full Moon. So do take advantage of them. And in so doing, you will be helping me immensely. And now, may I introduce you to my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing great, Bill. Those Exorcist books, a little triple header of terror. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'd like to see more people taking advantage of them. But uh, I suppose over time, people get interested, they come in. You know, uh, our audience is predominantly uh, Bigfoot, no doubt, right? Bigfoot terror in the woods. Yeah. Uh, But as our newcomers know, we kind of dig a little bit here and a little bit there, maybe uncover a couple of bodies. (laughs) Well, you know, Bill, (laughs) in fairness, they may have enough creep in their lives at the moment with everything going on. (laughs) They'll be there, but we are getting close to uh, the holidays, so it's time to buy a few books and put them under whatever kind of tree you like. (laughs) That's it, man. Yeah, that's it. You know, folks, get shopping, and uh, I'd like to see everybody in the audience pick up a book for themselves or somebody this year, so... Let's see if we can make that happen. Yeah, maybe somebody will send me an autographed copy of a book. It's probably going to have to be one of our customers that (laughs) read it already. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) Well, anyway, Kev, what do you got today in uh, Cryptids in the News and other oddities? Yeah, we're going to do some UFO talk tonight, Bill. Oh, yeah, and specifically some UAP. Oh. You know, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Yeah, no, uh, very interesting. You know, I'm kind of hot on that topic myself, you know. I know, I'm expecting some good interaction from you when you hear the topic. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Tic Tac UFO incident. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so this is back in... Uh, November 14th of 2004. 
Okay, you know, yeah. I recall seeing some of the video when it came out on that, and I was kind of uh, set back that they even uh, allowed that to come forward. It is kind of wild because the Pentagon actually declassified this gun camera video from some F-18 Super Hornets that were flying off of the aircraft carrier, the USS Nimitz. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is... This is unprecedented in the field of ufology to have uh, aircraft gun footage. I mean, camera, any type of camera footage. Yeah, that's from what the- it's really, you know, I call it gun footage. I'm kind of old school, but it's the forward looking infrared, you know, target acquisition cameras. So, yeah, yeah. And just incredible stuff with the chatter coming from the pilots. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, the way this went down. I'm sure some of our listeners have heard about it, and you can very easily see the footage. I'm going to put it on our website, uh, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, you know, under this episode. Um, So no need to hunt for it. But if you try to hunt for it, you'll find it right away. It's uh, fantastic and, uh, you know, definitely appears to be authentic. And these pilots that, you know, so these are Navy and Marine Corps pilots that are flying these F-18 Hornets and Super Hornets, and uh, they came forward, and they've done some interviews publicly, and and I'll also post some of those interviews as well, video of their interviews. So they're real cats, and we'll talk a little bit more about them as well as we get into it. Yeah, very interesting. Did you catch any of those shows that were being aired over a few-month period? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting and very candid interviews from a number of different people who just felt it was a matter of uh, safety and uh, in the public interest to have a real open discussion about what it is we're looking at. Yeah, it's true. But, Bill, when I still step back, I'm mystified that they released this video. Yeah. You know, unless they thought like, okay, it was going to get out. Because they said that on uh, on the Nimitz and on the Princeton, which was, I forget what kind of ship it is, but it's basically the, the ship that was doing all of the radar work for the carrier, mm-hmm. you know, some type of cruiser. And um, they, they were all watching the video and they saved the video. And then all of the crew of both ships, they said, were talking about it for weeks. Yeah. Of course, teasing one another, too, like pilots would, you know, like, hey, what'd you see out there, Bill? You know. Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, in the past, all of this stuff was done tongue in cheek and we never heard anything about it. Uh, And of course, uh, in the interest of full disclosure about what are UFOs and do we need to be concerned about them? You know, there's a lot of people out there that were hoping Somebody was just going to come clean for a change and tell the truth about some things. No, no doubt about it. So, yeah. So this is pretty interesting. So they, um, they, this was during the daytime when they saw them. That's important. And it's off of San Diego. On, uh, you know, they took off these F-18s, which are, you know, I think they're the current day uh, aircraft carrier, naval warfare, Marine Corps warfare jets, you know, fighter bomber jets. And uh, they took off and they were doing a little uh, practice that day, scheduled to do some practice of what they call two good guys against two bad guys, which, uh, you know, is exactly what it sounds like. Two Hornets take off. They go to a a meeting point. Another two Hornets 
come in tracking them, whether they know the meeting point or not, I don't know. And they try to uh, shoot each other down, you know, without real weapons, of course. Right. Yeah. I guess they get a lock on him, and that's good enough to consider yeah, they, the shoot they down. they talk, you know? too, in some of the interviews, the mock weapons that they have on the, on the aircraft. But that comes into play because when the— so, so, well, let me back up. So they're, they're getting ready to do this two good guys versus two bad guys training exercise. And uh, the good guys are flying F-18 Super Hornets. Um, you know, those are the more modern F-18s, carry a little more fuel, better, better avionics. Um, of course, not to be confused with the 2020 Murder Hornets. Yeah, these are actually aircraft super hornets. Yeah, and murder hornets. Uh, my understanding carry some weaponry as well. They do have some weaponry. Yeah, we, you don't <laughs> want to run into them or a super hornet for that matter. <laughs> but so the controller, the flight controller, gets on the radio to uh, the guys that are playing the good guys, and they say, uh, "Hey, we got to suspend the training exercise." And we're going to give you some new coordinates to head towards. So, you know, make sure we're clear. Training is over. We have a real-world threat. Okay. Wow, that's how it opened up. That's how it opened up. Now, Mm -hmm. and they talk about the fact that the radar guys on this uh, cruiser, the Princeton, um, had been tracking, apparently, this phenomena for a couple of weeks. So in one of the articles I read, uh, the radar operator, his name was Kevin Day, uh, he reported seeing odd and slow-moving objects flying in groups of 5 to 10 off San Clemente Island, west of San Diego coast, at an elevation of about 30,000 feet and moving at speeds of about 120 knots or around 140 miles an hour. And right. they said these, these clusters were too high to be birds, too slow to be conventional aircraft, and were not uh, traveling in any type of regular flight, pa- flight path that they would be familiar with. And they were seeing these, what, come and go over a couple of weeks? Over a couple of weeks, but they never had aircraft up or ready to go up when they saw them in the past. Okay. So when they popped up this time, they were like, hey, wait a minute. Those are those things that we saw last week or, you know, the other day. Let's uh, suspend this training and go after them. Okay. See what Fair the enough. guys think. Yeah. And, and in, a, <coughs> sorry, in a different report, another crew member uh, put forward that um, they said the objects, quote, exhibited ballistic missile characteristics, unquote. And they say that the objects zoomed from 60,000 feet to 50 feet above the Pacific Ocean. And they said, alarmingly, without producing any sonic booms. That is really strange. Yep. I mean, we all know, well, not all of us, but many of us know, you, to hit that type of speed. Oh, and be uh, accelerating and decelerating like that. Right. And no sonic boom? No. Impossible. No, and they say, so these radar operators on the Princeton, they spent about two weeks attempting to figure out what was going on with these objects. This is prior to the flight. And uh, the process of trying to figure out what was going on included having the ship's radar system shut down and recalibrated to make sure that they weren't getting like a a ghost uh, false positive return on the radar. Mm-hmm. You know, that they weren't seeing something that wasn't really there. 
Yeah. Well, of course, they know what they're doing, and oh, they yeah. gave it their due diligence, you know? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. So, so what happened next? Yeah, so super cool. So they, um, I got excited, and I uh, got lost in my Well, notes. no, you were talking about them <laughs> having checked them out for the past couple of weeks, going oh, from yeah, 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 30,000 yeah. to 50 feet off the deck. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, break off these two super hornets, the ones that have the more fuel, more fuel capability. They take off. They don't have any real weapons on the plane, though. They talk about that in some of the interviews. You know, that uh, controller comes on, the radar controller, and says, what kind of ordinance do you have? You know, and they kind of giggle, you know, because they're like, yeah, we got nothing, you know, yeah. on this training exercise. And I guess, of course, when they're doing mock dogfights, they don't want any weapons on there because somebody would, you know— undoubtedly fire one by accident. So anyway, yeah, we, these these pilots get sent out there. They're getting very close to where these objects are on the radar as they're flying. So, you know, the radar operators in their ear saying, you know, you should be upon them now. And they get to this area of uh, the radar coverage. They call it a merged plot, which basically means that you know, once you get into uh, a small area uh, with your plane versus the target you're going after, the the radar can't uh, give you an, enough granularity for you to see where the target is. You right. just know it's very close to you. So right, then they right. look up from their radar typically, and they're looking for a visual ID, especially during the daytime. Sure. Right. And even even more uh, fantastic daytime. Yeah. Oh, clear day, blue sky. Right. No you know. cloaking, no darkness. Yeah. So which, they're you know. like in this merged plot area flying around the two of them. And they're both, you know, you could imagine their heads on a swivel, looking all around, looking down, looking up. And they don't see anything. And they get back to the radar controller and they're like, hey, you know, we don't see anything. And then they look down at the surface of the water and they see what they think is a crashed plane. Or a submerging submarine. Yeah, yes. I, I saw that video. Did you see that? I Kim? did. I did. It's just like churning water. It looks like a submarine, like blowing ballast or something. Yeah, exactly. Or you know, like the one person described it as like a seven thirty seven that had sunk under the water. Right, and the, the after effect of the water like surfacing and yeah, exactly all the air bubbles and yep, stuff like that yep, turning yep. around, which they're out in the middle of the ocean, you know, and they're off the continental shelf there, so it's deep water mm-hmm. in the Pacific. So you know they're out a hundred miles or whatever it was. So they're like, "What the heck is that?" And then they see this tic tac. That's what they called it, the pilots, tic-tac-shaped thing, which you'll see it in the video. It's going from a hover over the water where this uh, disturbance is in the water to an active climb uh, up to their same altitude. And then it like zips off to the side, Mm -hmm. you know, so kind of disappears. And when they first talked about it, you know, they 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 talked about it as being not of this world. Huh? Yeah. I mean, come on. These guys, look what they're flying. Oh, yes. Well, and they talk about the fact that they were flying at about uh, 400 miles an hour, which is, you know, they were saying, I forget how they put it, the pilots, but it's a really good speed for them to be flying at because they can 
they can be fully maneuverable, you know, and they can be looking around. It's not like they're on supersonic Mach 2 or something like that, you know. Right, right. It's just a nice speed for the jets, plenty of visibility, plenty of maneuverability. So they could target in on this with the radar and that and get up pretty close to it. But it just looks like, and you've seen the video, Bill, but for some of our listeners that haven't seen it, kind of like the exact shape, the oblong shape of like a, a pill capsule or a Tic Tac. Yeah. Um, you know, super, super wild. Yeah, it makes me wonder, too, if uh, these uh, little craft, whatever they were, were coming from a USO. Oh, uh, yeah, which exactly. Is, an unidentified submersible object. Yeah, or somehow they're related, you know. Yeah, yep, that um, churning it, in the water. Yeah. And they go on and talk about it, these pilots, you know, and they're using this uh, very sophisticated, right, naval uh, forward-looking infrared radar, infrared, you know, um, and they, they're they saying all the time when these things are darting around and they're zooming in on it, they have some heat associated with them, you know, they're showing up from the sensors here as they're switching back and forth with different filters and stuff. They have some heat, but they have no thrust signature that's yeah. visible. Yeah. You know, so just crazy. Yeah. And aerodynamically, there were no no appendages, no, yeah, no ailerons, no, no wings, fin. No, no control surfaces. But more importantly, no heat signature, no thrust signature. Yeah. You know, from these things, which, you know, all of the pilots and the radar controllers were like, what the, you know, we've never seen anything like that. Yeah. What's powering them? Yeah. And and the pilots said um, this thing accelerated like nothing I've ever seen. Mm. And the pilot also went on to say that it left him, quote, pretty weirded out, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a naval, naval aviator. Talking publicly about this, yeah. Well, what are you to think? You know, exactly. I mean, he, he's 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 the best of the best in our aviators, and he's looking at something that just does not make sense in any sense of the word. Yep. Wow. Exactly. Wow. Just incredible. I mean, pretty pretty wild stuff, you know. And other uh, they interview other naval aviators, and they really talk about the fact that. Like, where is the exhaust from whatever is powering these things? Where is that signature? Yeah, and in the picture, uh, in the uh, movie camera, whatever you want to call it, yeah. uh, this thing was rotating around. It was moving. Exactly. And, you know, to add mystery to mystery, aside from having no control surfaces, wings, uh, stabilizer, uh, fin, uh, no thrust signature. The thing is like rotating and tumbling around like it's just uh, an egg rolling down a hill. Yeah. I mean, it's just weird. And, yeah. And when you, you know, when you look at it, like on some of the videos, they actually take you through what the different uh, uh, nomenclature around the radar screen that the pilot's looking at means. You know, uh -huh. so kind of where the camera's aimed, you know, like four degrees down, you know, from the plane's level, uh, what zoom level it's on, how fast it's going, stuff like that. So it's pretty it's pretty cool. Like, everything in the video syncs up with everything that 
these folks have said in multiple interviews over time. Yeah. Now, how did the, their day end, Kev, or just or what we know just kind of ended with that live yeah, so video it's clip? So the first uh, pair of pilots that saw it, what I was talking about, um, they flew back to the carrier and another pair of pilots went out and saw the same thing. Wow. Other than the submerging uh, craft. They didn't see right. that, but they... They saw this tic tac like thing, and uh, and at one point the thing took off like, and you see it on the camera, like usually it's kind of jumping around with the radar lock on it from the flare, um, but then it like took off to the left and disappeared, mm-hmm. and then in one of the interviews the radar operator on the Princeton comes on and says that to the uh, captain, or they call him the skipper. Um, the, the, the pilot, um, he comes on and tells him that this, uh, he's like, you know, we picked up the, the device disappeared, uh, the device, the, the UAP disappeared, but we picked it up now. And he said, you're not going to believe it, but it's at your cap point, C-A-P. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that stands for combat air patrol point. And what, what that is, is they have a rendezvous point where they meet after they do the dogfight with the, uh, you know, the mock enemies, you know, their other F-18 pilots from the Nimitz, then they go and they meet at this other rendezvous point, and they call it the cap point. Mm -hmm. But they don't publish that, where that is on the radio, but they said that they had been using it, you know, during the week in various training exercises. And these Tic Tac things show up like two seconds later or some ridiculous amount of time, they show up hundreds of miles away at the cap point. Like an impossible distance for them to fly. Yeah, in that yeah amount really of time. impossible. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned this. I was down by the Great South Bay in Remsenburg in the 80s at night, Kev. Hmm. I was sitting over there in a Ford van I had at the time, an F-150 with a big windshield on it. And I was looking out over the bay and this moonless, beautiful night, very dark over there. The sky was just like a blaze with stars. And I was sitting there with a friend of mine. And all of a sudden, I see what I think is a satellite. Yeah. And you and I know what satellites look like. Anybody can see them at night if you spend some time looking at the sky. Yeah. And so I'm having a conversation with my friend about how to pick out a satellite, what their characteristics are, how they move. And I'm just telling him how you could tell they're a satellite because their movement is very stable in a straight line and they don't stop or turn. And as I'm telling this to him, this thing that I'm looking at stops. I mean, like. Brakes on, no movement. Then it banged a couple of hard turns. And I'm talking right angles. Left, right, right, left. Hey, wait a minute. Are you marching or looking at a UFO? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 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 And as soon as that happened, this thing went into overdrive. Mm. And I mean, you know, uh, I know there's a way of, uh, I'm trying to think of it. What do they call it, Kev? Arc mirrors? 
Hmm. When you're looking at the sky and measuring it using like your fingers spread apart. Oh, I actually don't know. Don't yeah, know. I, I'm trying to think of it, but it really doesn't matter. Yeah. This thing covered the entire sky going to the northeast that I could see visually in a matter of maybe 20 or 30 seconds. Hmm. I don't even know what distance that is. I know what the airliners look like flying over the same area out of Kennedy at about, you know, five, six hundred miles an hour. Yeah. This thing had to be going 5,000 miles an hour, 10,000 miles an hour. It, so fast that I don't even know what the calculation would be. That's how fast it took off. Mm. And we sat there. And I, more so than him, was mesmerized. Uh, you know, like some people, you say to yourself, why is it they're not interested in this? Right. But to him, it was like, eh, you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever? Do you realize what you were just looking at? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so when you talk about these Tic Tacs, uh, it reminds me of that night. The speed and the changes of direction was ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, you know the the parting thought I'll leave you with. It's interesting. One of the uh, pilots that went out to intercept a Tic Tac has never uh, done an interview uh, that I've come across an on the record interview, and his name is Lieutenant Colonel Cheeks. You know that's his call sign, Kurth K U R T H, and he was a Marine Hornet Squadron commanding officer. He was asked to go out there. Never did an interview. But later on in his career, not that long after this incident, he did take a job as a program manager at the Bigelow Advanced Aerospace Studies in Las Vegas. Oh. Yeah, and, you know, Robert Bigelow is a well-known private funder of uh, UFO and paranormal research. So, yeah, and, of course, Bigelow owned Skinwalker Ranch. Exactly. Wow. Or he did own it, right? The other guy owns it now. Right. He's yeah. the former owner. He's the former owner, right. Right. Um, so that's kind of interesting, you know, that this naval aviator that had this encounter ends up working for Bigelow in Vegas. Yeah, well, you know, maybe he just didn't want to say too much. And, sure. Uh, well, you could understand, don't we? We talk about it. It's just like if, uh, you know, after we record this podcast tonight and I walk outside with uh, Big Martha and I see a Bigfoot, you know, of course, with all of my experience talking about it, reading about it, doing the accounts, I think I would say something about it. But the average person, you know, would be like, oh, what's the repercussion of this? Yeah, yeah, you it's know, a shame. What too, are people you know? going to think? Yep. Let, yep. A, let alone, you know, a naval aviator that probably got ribbed by his commanding officers at the time, you know, like, oh, what'd you see? Yeah, oh. Yeah, maybe you should go down to the dock and get your eyes checked again, you know. Yeah, yeah, so. especially if, like, you're, I'm not saying he was, but what if you were, like, the squadron leader or well, something? Well, yeah, and know? they just, you know, I'm sure they rib each other like crazy anyway. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you're kind of like, okay, does this have any repercussion on me or not? You know? Yeah, yeah. So. Wow, that's incredible. Well, there we go with the Tic Tac. Yeah, and folks and, out uh, there listening, I mean, keep a... Uh, Keep an eye and an ear out for more information on this and send it our way if you got some more insights, especially if some of you out there, you know, were on some of these ships back then and you're listening yep. now. 
Yeah, very interesting. And you know our audience. If they've got anything, they're going to be knocking on our door. Oh, I know. Absolutely. Now, we're going to go from uh, one form of high strangeness to another one. And uh, buckle your seatbelts because it's going to get a little wacky here in a minute. <laughs> uh, this account was told to me by a guy named Chase Deerdorf, who is a scout leader. Uh, living in West Virginia. And this is the account as it was told to me by Chase. As you already know, Bill, I'm a scout leader and have been so for some 20 years. There were a few boys who were in the midst of achieving their Eagle Scout badge, and we had planned a weekend for some wilderness survival training. After much consideration, I and a few other leaders had selected an area near Bruffy Creek by the base of Round Mountain as the location best suitable for the weekend's training. Personally, I had been in the Special Forces where I underwent considerable survival training while in the service of our country. However, there is a critical difference in what I had learned and what a Boy Scout needs to embrace. As a soldier, we were typically we would typically begin our training based on the scenario that we are in enemy territory and need to get back to friendlies. The most typical scenario being that of a downed pilot. In that situation, we want to be totally evasive. We do not want to be found and must by any means survive off the land for as long as it takes to be extricated from behind the lines or find our way back to a safe haven. As a Boy Scout, however, the scenario is completely different. We are working under the notion that an individual or individuals have lost their way and, in fact, want to be found. So the focus is more on signaling and shelter than living off the land and staying out of sight. It was the first week of August 2003 when we made our way into the area to set up camp for the weekend. There was a total of seven people, four young men and three leaders. After having set up camp and done a little reconnoitering of the surrounds, this day was to be geared around constructing shelters out of materials found in the woods. So during the day, we focused on the traditional lean-to design and what I will call an open front hut, which basically consists of three sides and a roof made of logs and tree boughs. The boys that day had proven themselves exceptionally, exceptionally well for young men. Their skills and ability to work together as a team were truly remarkable. This is what scouting is all about. We want to instill within young men a level of maturity and responsibility that is not the norm societally. At day's end, we all had a well-deserved good night's rest after having spent the evening around the campfire. The following morning, we got up early with the day's plan being to start with practicing some techniques used for signaling for help. As a group, we were working on how to create a smoky fire using fresh pine boughs. As the day progressed, we had created two signals, which could in theory be seen from the air. One spelled out the letters SOS with large logs and branches, and a second spelled the word help. Both were created in the same fashion in a couple of clearings. 
Having accomplished phase one of this exercise, we as a group began to hike up Round Mountain in hopes of seeing what the signals looked like from some elevation. It was a fairly rigorous hike, to say the least, but we did finally reach several excellent points from which we could clearly see that what we had created would in fact work quite well. I was extremely happy with the effort these young men had put forth, and we all descended the mountain. There's nothing like the feeling of a job well done as a team, and these are the types of things that we want these youngsters to take hold of and carry throughout their lives. We spent the latter part of the afternoon and evening resting up and enjoying each other's company. This was being done out of necessity because tonight we were going to engage in a group night hike. Our plan was to climb the lower level of Round Mountain well after sunset and see just what type of challenges navigating in the dark would present. Now, I have to tell you that I brought along with me a military-grade night optics device, a device which I personally use to look for UFO activity in the night sky. But that is a story for another day. And yet, as crazy as the story will turn out, it was actually quite a coincidence that I had the optical device with me at the time. The night was clear, and we were under a gibbous moon at about half stage that was very bright. This enabled us to have some fairly decent illumination during the hike. We had made it up to what I would say was about 2,000 feet in elevation and had stopped for a well-needed breather. Having hiked up the mountain earlier, I was wondering if this was the best of choices for the night, but we were there nevertheless. As we sat resting and talking, one of the young men said, Hey guys, check that out. As we all looked in the direction of this, his pointing finger, we could see a light source in the distance that was moving very slowly. Personally, my first thought was that it was a person holding something like a lantern walking around in the woods. It was very difficult for us to judge how, how far away it was because we didn't know the size of the light we were looking at. Obviously, the light had all of our undivided attention. It would move in one direction and then in another. At times, it varied in its intensity. And at some point, it appeared to be speeding through the trees at a rate that no man could have done walking or running. We could see it zooming in and out of sight within the forest, zigzagging around in a very fast and random pattern. At this point, we all knew this was not a man with a lantern or a man with anything else for that matter. It was after about 20 minutes or so, we had decided to descend in the direction of this object in hopes of seeing what it was. We were able to keep our eyes on it for virtually the entire time we were hiking in its direction, and it seemed to be staying within a certain area darting about in the trees. We were nearing where it was and could now see that it was a ball of soft blue light. We reached a spot where we were maybe 
200 yards away. Again, this was only a guess because we didn't know how large this ball was, which made it extremely hard to judge the distance. I was having a really tough time getting this thing into focus and following it because of its extreme movements. And after maybe 10 minutes or so, it stopped, and I was able to put the lens right on it. I could now see it hovering next to a tree in a small opening within the forest. The light from it was casting a glow on the surrounding trees. Everyone was getting excited, and we started to really hustle in hopes of getting closer to it when we reached the point of being maybe 50 yards away. Now I could see in vivid detail that it was about two feet in diameter, and everybody with me was taking turns with my night vision scope. We were completely mesmerized by this orb. Then one of the boys who was using the optics at the time said that it was doing something really weird. He said that it looked like it was bulging outward or something. Passing the optics to me, he said, Here, Mr. Deardorff, take a look. As I put the scope to my eye, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I'm sure that we all remember blowing soap bubbles as a kid. You put the little wand up to your lips and slowly blew into the ring of soap, and the bubble would gradually come out of the ring, being very large. This was exactly what I was seeing. This blue orb was now gradually bulging outward, and a large glob, for lack of a better word, was coming out of its side, growing in size as it descended to the ground. This orb was hovering maybe 10 or 12 feet from the ground. As the bubble-like structure met with the ground, we could see something forming within the bubble. It was a huge Bigfoot. At this point, the bubble was still attached to the orb, and it didn't make any sense to me or the others how something this large could be coming out of something so small. I speak for all of us when I say we were stunned by what we were seeing. I could tell some of the boys were getting a little frightened, but to their credit, they hung tough. What I just described to you stayed in this way for about 10 minutes as we were passing the scope around between each of us. It was then that the bubble became detached from the orb, and the orb and bubble were now completely separated and intact. We could see this large Bigfoot standing motionless within the bubble. To the eyes, it looked like it was frozen in space and time. It was not moving an inch. It was then that the bubble started to dissipate and the Bigfoot was left standing in the glow of the orb and started to move. Well, let me tell you, Bill, you will never see three men and four boys tear it up through the woods so fast in your life. We ran for about four or five hundred yards before we even considered coming to a stop. Thank God nobody got hurt in the melee. As we stood there panting, 
We all looked back in the direction of the Bigfoot and the orb and could still make out the orb in the trees. After we caught our breath, we kept walking and did not stop until we made it all the way back to the tents. From the camp, we could still see the orb up in the mountain, and it was moving around again within the trees. All of us were left wondering where the Bigfoot could possibly be. And we were very uncomfortable thinking about that, as you can imagine. We spent the next 30 minutes breaking down the camp with a speed that I didn't think was humanly possible. We were moving like Popeye on a can of spinach. (laughs) (laughs) And when we were through, we hightailed it out of there. These boys are adults now, and they keep in touch with me on a regular basis. A bond was formed between all of us that night on Round Mountain that can never be broken. I know you'd like to hear about the Bigfoot and what it looked like, and all I can say is this. It was extremely large and broad in every sense of the word, just as we have all seen it in all the pictures and depictions. It was also completely covered in fur from head to toe. As it had started to slowly move, we were out of there in such a hurry that I couldn't gather anything more about it. Mm. What do you think of that, Kim? That's one of the wildest ones I've heard, Bill. I mean, just a, and you know, again, you and I don't talk about what we're going to speak about. No, no. But as I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, you know, this orb darting around and the tic tac darting around. Looking at it with the field scope. And yeah, just, you know, and it's a bunch of scouts and this, you know, ex special forces guy. Like, so it's not like they're out partying. Uh, Eating some exotic mushrooms. Yeah, no, they're just basically doing some field exercises to get a badge. Exactly. And, uh, you know, this happens, you yeah, know, like. Up in West Virginia, right? Really yeah, rural just, place, right? Well, yeah, well, you don't know what you're going to run across and when. That's no. the whole thing, you know? No. That's There's why no you pre- always have to carry. More gun than you think you're going to need. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying, brother. <laughs> How about, like uh, Gun Guru says. <laughs> what do you say? Unless you're swimming or on fire, you can't have too much ammo. That's correct. Gun Guru, Gun Guru says you can never carry too much ammunition unless you're swimming or on fire. That's some good Peace advice Peace be with there. you. <laughs> What's that, Kevin? I said, that's some good advice there. There you go. Kind of keep repeating that one. Get that chain gun going, man. (laughs) (laughs) That might have been Chewbacca. I don't know. (laughs) You know, Kev, they used to, over at the old Grumman base in Calverton, they used to set the A-10s... 30 millimeter uh, Gatling gun up out there and run run rounds out into some type of crazy target. Yeah. And I mean, when that thing went off, man, it was loud and it was just like. Well, you know, your brother was out there when they tested the Gatling gun on the F-14D Super Tomcat. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I was on the flight line. Oh, and uh, they had a little range there where they would 
kind of nose the F-14 down a hill, kind of, you know, right. so that they could have this below the surface of the ground backdrop for right. uh, targeting. And they, I was interning at the time out there, and they let us go and see that. And they just basically hit the fire button. I forget how many rounds that thing used to fire, but it was ludicrous. And yeah. uh, it would be like, you know, and all you saw was like smoke and this huge target at the end just destroyed. Yeah. You know, I think they ran off like uh, 3,000 oh, a minute was crazy. or something. It was like three or 6,000, something like yeah, that. Yeah, some crazy number. Ludicrous number and big, big bullets. I forget the caliber, but they were like 50 gals or something. <laughs> Yeah. And then the funniest part was, you know, way back when, this is old news now, but, you know, this was Grumman that built the uh, F-14 originally. Great, great company, really uh, inventive guys. And I interned with them for a while. And uh, the designers would always say, like, they never wanted to put the gun in the plane because apparently at that point in time, at least, which is a long time ago, they never, ever had a dogfight. With guns, you know, unlike what they show on Top Gun and stuff like that. Again, naval aviators out there, let me know if that's wrong. I would love to love to know what's uh, what's going on these days. But, um, you know, because they had all of these rockets and, you know, basically fire and forget missiles that you could launch from many, many, many miles away. So you Uh never really got close enough to be firing a Gatling gun. But the the Navy, you know, who specced out the aircraft and uh, the hard requirements said, hey, you got to have this badass Gatling gun on the nose of an F-14. And that's how it that's how it went to market. I forget how much it weighed. That's what the designers were upset about. I remember them telling me I, I probably couldn't say even if I could remember how much it weighed. That's probably a secret. But uh, pretty, pretty uh, chunky piece of metal as you would imagine (laughs) yeah i met a pilot out there uh, many years ago a retired pilot and he had the stick out of his airplane in his house ah very cool yeah he had it mounted to a you know a finished piece of wood yeah uh, just like as a memento of his time spent you know yeah yeah but i do remember that in uh how we get on these subjects i don't know but i love it anyway (laughs) Uh, I do remember in Vietnam, they used to set up a uh, C-130, and one side of the plane had a couple of openings in it, out of which was a Gatling gun and a 20-millimeter cannon. Oh, you know, they use that still in the, yeah. in the Middle East. It's called an a, AC-130. Yeah, and they use that to loiter over certain oh, yeah. targets. yeah. Crazy. To just rip the snot out of them. No, and the people on the ground, the poor souls on the ground, have no idea where what's going on. It's just everything around them is all of a sudden blowing up. Yeah, just incredible, yeah. man. Yeah, crazy. But get back to these guys. How we got in that subject, I guess you were wishing, if you were running through the woods that night, you were wishing you had some type of chain gun. Yeah, to, a little, uh, little Gatling gun. Yeah. Start shooting behind you while you're trying to escape. <laughs> Maybe two oh, of them. How about the guy saying we were running like Popeye in a can of I spinach? Know, that's, I had to interrupt. Usually I don't interrupt you, but uh, <laughs> I was like, Oy, 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 oy. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's one of my own lines, too. I use that all the time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, anybody who grew up around the days we did with those cartoons, you can't forget when Popeye popped the can. Popped the can and the spinach flew up in the air and landed in his <laughs> mouth. His hyperextended jaw. Or, or, or he'd suck it with his pipe. Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. Well, that's a good, yeah, so that's uh, good it, creepy bro. story. And again, uh, without us knowing about it, tied in a little bit with my uh, UFO discussion from the Nimitz going back to 2004. Yeah, it's all weird. Tic Tacs, UFOs, orbs. Yeah. There's, there's weirdness the going on man. out there. And the hairy man coming out of a glob. Ooh. That is some weird stuff, man. You got so it. So what do we got from our listeners Yeah, today, we got bro? some great mail this week, Bill. Um, the first letter I'm going to read goes back after me talking about the werewolves in, in uh, uh, the United Kingdom, Great Britain. Okay. So this is about the pub I talked about from the movie American Werewolf in London called The Slaughtered Lamb. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Scott writes in and he says, I love the latest uh, appetite (laughs) episode. I have a little (laughs) bit of an appetite, apparently. (laughs) And just wanted to provide a little more info on the slaughtered lamb. Wow. The original slaughtered lamb was a real pub in a small town just north of London, cursed with the bloodline of the werewolf. Wow. Yeah, the inhabitants of East Proctor would sacrifice a lamb of their flock and smear the blood over the doors as part of a ritual to ward off the evil spirit of the werewolf. Wow, that is freaking crazy. I know. This this slaughtered lamb pub was a legit location? Yes, that's what he's saying. Wow. And he said a pentagon was also erected as a sign of respect so the werewolf would not trespass on the property of the bearer. These same rituals were practiced at the local town tavern, and it became a standard way of life for the local people. Uh, what time frame are we talking about, did he say? No, but I, I don't think this was that long ago, you know, in the last hundred years. Because they play so off that in the movie, The American Werewolf in London, which was, you know, in the 80s. Yeah, but I'm thinking this almost sounds like some type of uh, medieval. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Wow. Very bizarre. And then he says there are still a number of pubs that have the name, the Slaughtered Lamb, and depict the image of a werewolf head with blood dripping from its mouth on the pub sign hanging over the door. Keep up the great work. You brighten my day. Wow. Now, I have to have a request of... Who is this, Scott? Scott, yeah. Scott, I know you're listening to us. If you can, when you can, I'd like you to snap some pictures or find us some pictures of the signage for some of these slaughtered lamb pubs, if that's at all possible. Yeah, and I will look for some, Bill, online, because I think I can find... An image, but but Scott okay. definitely do that. But I'm going to look as well. Yeah, re- really interesting, you know. And uh, 
Another strange tidbit from our friends oh, in yeah. Great Britain. It's fantastic. And as as I was reading this, I was like, you know, now I, I still have to go back. I didn't go back and rewatch one of my favorite movies, um, American Werewolf in London. But I think I remember that when they came up and they saw the sign with the blood on it and the blood on the door. And they were like, what the heck is this? You know. Yeah, because they were from America. Yeah, they were New Yorkers, you know. Right, they didn't know in. what was going what on. What the heck? Wow, that is yeah. freaky deaky, Wild man. man, right? Cool. Well, yeah. thank you, Scott. Thanks for uh, giving us some more color, even if it was the color of blood. Blah. All right, our next <laughs> note comes in from Jay. And Jay writes, love the show. Hello, Bill and Kev. I've been listening since day one and enjoy the content greatly. I'm listening to the Monroe, Michigan episode right now, and I know where the Monroe attack happened. It's only about 30 30 minutes from where I'm at right now. It wouldn't seem like it, but there are still a lot of recreational areas and open forest lands in southern Michigan where these things could travel. We're also only about an hour's drive from the p- place in Ohio where the infamous grass man has been reported many times. Love the show and keep up the good work. Hmm. So that's pretty interesting because, you know, Jay and Bill, I was thinking that when I was looking at the map and reading these accounts, because it's right in the southern part of Michigan, uh, not yeah. up in the Upper Peninsula or any of the really rural parts. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, this stuff is really going on right there. And then, you know, Jay brings up that it's uh, not too far away from where the Ohio Grassman has been reported. And, you know, we did a show on the Ohio Grassman as well. Yeah. And also Momo, right, from Missouri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's this, see, this stuff going around there where you least expect it. Uh, the creature is there, or creatures are there. Yep. So they're not subjugated to whatever we think is the right place to be or to be seen. Uh, they just show up. Mm. And uh, it's like the tic-tac, right? Yep. The guys were going out on a training exercise. The training exercise was pushed off, and they were going to a live target. Just like that. Boom, boom, boom. Change of plans, boys. Mm. So, and that's how it works. You know, you never know. You could look and look and look and do your due diligence. And then one day when you're planning a birthday party, you see something. Mm. You know, it's very weird. Uh, you know, unbelievable. Super Kev. cool. Super cool. Yep. Yep. All right, we got another interesting one here. So this comes in from Idaho, believe it or not, and you'll uh, you'll understand why I said believe it or not. Um, and he says, hey, Bill and Kevin, to begin, I've been binged out on your shows at work for the past week. They are truly great. I have some comments on something I heard you all talk about on the show. Vampires. There are a few ways to kill them, other than the traditional stake in the heart. Burials found in Romania have found human skulls 
with large stones lodged into an overextended jaw so the vampire can't feed and thus spread his vampirism. Oh, yeah. The name vampire in Hungary contains the root farkas, uh, which is also the word for wolf or werewolf. The connection with bats is probably more literary, and the connection is due to nocturnalism rather than transformation. He said, Bigfoot. With Halloween having just passed, I noticed an eerily surprising connection between Bigfoot and trolls in Scandinavian legend. My ma's family is from Sweden, and when looking at some old stories of trolls, I found that if you look at depictions of trolls, they look very similar to the hairy man. There are some differences, but if you look at the Russian Bigfoot, the situation is similar. Besides, trolls live under bridges, and if I were a Bigfoot, I'd hide under a bridge and eat any passers that come by. (laughs) And he says another story is about the Brunmingi. I think that's how you pronounce it. A creature sometimes depicted as tall, dark, and evil. Uh, that goes about urinating in drinking wells. He said, I could also imagine a Bigfoot doing that. <laughs> that's funny. He says, This I'm is what he does? He, he, he pisses in drinking that's wells? That's what he says. We're gonna, I'm going to have to put that one on the list. Check that out. Yeah. And then he says, I've never met the hairy man, but me and my father have seen footprints. My grandpa has screamed, has been screamed at by one, and my family has a plethora of other encounters out here in the timber. Can't wait for your next episode, and stay warm over there. Go with God, my brothers. Yeah, you know, I've, uh, uh, I'm doing a little tag with this fellow, too. Mm. I'm interested in hearing what the plethora of uh, sightings or encounters are that his family has had. Exactly. And uh, we're kind of going back a little bit, which is, folks, when you when I ask you to contact me, I am going to do my due diligence to get to you. And those of you who I've spoken to uh, know that I, I do try my best. But the timing and the work and the time zones uh, can be a little bit uh, perplexing at times, but... For the most part, we seem to get together, and I've been trying to reach out to this fellow to hear some more of what he has to say. So, uh, very interesting, though. Very interesting. Very cool. And sorry about the background noise. Somebody uh, is somewhere out in a neighborhood with uh, some type of racing vehicle with fully blown headers or something, if you can hear that. (laughs) Hey, you can't knock a guy for drag hey, racing you know, around a neighborhood. We're in NASCAR country here. You you see it all. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a 427 with open the headers. Open headers. There you go. Maybe it's a little <laughs> Shelby big block Cobra. There you go. Yeah. I better get out there. I can probably see the flames coming out of those headers. Oh, man. All right, I'm going to leave you with a creepy one, Bill. You may have seen this letter come in, and I can't tell if it's a small child or an adult writing about what happened when they were a small child, but it's good and creepy. Mm -hmm. And this comes in from Gwendolyn, and it's called Dark Figure at the Foot of My Bed. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Black-Eyed Children? 
Nothing to fear. Please let us in. We just want to use your telephone. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little black-eyed children-esque. Yeah, so, how about Gwendolyn? Well, maybe Gwendolyn's a black-eyed children. I don't know. <laughs> but she says, or maybe her father is. Let's, let's see how this goes. I was yes. terrified of this dark figure at the bottom of my bed. I would start screaming for my mom and dad when I saw it. Mom would come and tell me um, that I was making it up and I need to go to sleep so that they can get to sleep, her mother and father. Every night, the figure was there. One night, it came around to the side of my bed and bent over me. I was terrified. I screamed and my father came to my bed. I told him what it looked like and how it moved. And dad told me it was guarding me, that it would not hurt me. I saw it for a long time. Mom never believed me. But after dad said it was guarding me, I wasn't afraid of it. It never made a sound, just watched. Well, yeah. Yeah, you could see why I know, said word, maybe her dad was one of the black-eyed children. Yeah, I don't know if I'd take the advice Ooh, of it it's guarding, guarding you. me. Oh, yeah, yeah. guarding nothing, me. Nothing. Yeah, nothing dark is ever guarding you, in my oh, opinion. It's creep fest, especially when it says, "Do you have any Lay's potato chips? <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me a ride to your house?" <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing coming to take your potato chips is your friend. Remember that. <laughs> what about a Labrador Retriever? She's often going after Yeah, nothing mine. coming to take your dog is your <laughs> no, friend. No, my Labrador is often going after my chips. <laughs> and she's a dark mass, too. She is a dark mass. And she does hover <laughs> over you when you're eating. <laughs> uh, Martha the Shadow figure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was excellent. Yeah, so I promised to leave you with something creepy. I think that's creepy. And, uh, folks, great reviews you've been leaving us. Great show tonight. So please log in from your favorite podcast player. You could do it right now while you're listening. As soon as you finish, give us five stars on your favorite player. We really appreciate it. And it's important to give us those five-star reviews because then it brings more listeners to the program and that allows Bill and I to make improvements and continue to improve the quality of the podcast. So thank you very much. And uh, we also love to see some of those kind words that you folks are leaving in uh, written reviews. We really appreciate it. Be safe out there. This COVID thing looks like it's heating up again, unfortunately, with the cold weather. So be careful. Put your mask on. Keep your hands clean and be safe. Yeah, and uh, we appreciate you guys like you have no idea. Uh, I want to encourage you, though, to go out and buy some of my books. I really mean that. Uh, some people buy books, but nowhere's near the amount of people I could be doing it who are in our listening audience. So please go out there and... Make a purchase, audio, a paperback, or ebook, and you'll be helping me out a great deal. And by the way, if you should decide to tip into the slaughtered lamb, maybe it's a good idea that you should always carry more gun than you think you're going to need.
Sleep tight. <laughs>